Okay. Uh, if I recall, where were we? Um, was it the fact that we didn't have a bedin? Right. That's very well. Yeah, I think we were over here. Hamishat Midima Yul Rabban Yohanam Zakai, no? Yeah, because we had Hilel Kiblumi Hilel Ubedino, and then we said Hamisha, that was the end of the Beddin. Yes, correct. Hamishat Midima Yul Rabban Yohanam Zakai. Did I put it up normally? What did I do? Um, yeah, but it's okay for. Uh, I'll get the Safari link. Do you know where it is? If you can't put it up now. How about it there? I don't know why my computer is so low the volume. Okay. חמישה תלמידים היו לרבן יוחנן בן זכאי, והם גדולי החכמים שקבלו ממנו. There were five תלמידים that רבן יוחנן בן זכאי, remember רבן יוחנן בן זכאי is at the time of the חורבן בית המקדש. Right, so he's the one that's dealing with the חורבן, he's the one that's negotiating יבנה וחכמיה, he's the one that's dealing with all of this. So he has five תלמידים that received from him. רבי אלעזר הגדול, רבי אלעזר הגדול is just רבי אלעזר, anytime she רבי אלעזר, the Mishnah is רבי אלעזר. Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Yosei Kohen, Rabbi Shimon ben Netanel, Rabbi Al-Azhar ben Arach. Rabbi Al-Azhar ben Arach was exorbitantly wealthy. Rabbi Akiva ben Yosef, Kibel Mirel is Ragadol. So now you're getting to some more familiar territory. And Rabbi Akiva, who it says Rabbi Akiva ben Yosef, was a ger. His father was a ger. So Rabbi Akiva, there's a whole story about Rabbi Akiva, that he went and he learned from the Achamim. He was 40 years old. And he learns from Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer, um, Rabbi Eliezer was a Shamoti. And what that means is that he was a Talmid of Bet He was a Talmid of Bet <clears throat> So he is extremely strict, Rabbi Eliezer Agadol. Remember, Rabbi Eliezer is the guy who's in the Sugyan Baba Metziah with the, with the Tanur of Achnai. So Rabbi Eliezer is the one that normally is most strict because he's a Shamoti and he learned in, in Bet Shammai. And so the manufacturer of the Tanur of Achnai figured that if he goes to Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer is Matir and everybody else is going to be Matir because everybody else is more lenient than him. They're all Bet Hilelniks. And Rabbi Eliezer did Matir the oven and everybody else was Mahmir curveball on his uh, on his on his oven. Rabbi Larizer gets put into Harim later and Rabbi Akiva has to go tell him it's all problem. Yosef Aviv Gersedekaya. So the Yosef, the father of Rabbi Akiva, was a Gersedek. And so also Rabbi Meir was the son of Gerim, which is astonishing. It's astonishing. And the reason why it's astonishing is not because they were Gerim, but because these two men, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Meir, are literally the entirety of Torah Shabbat Peh that we have today. In other words, the whole Torah Shabbat Peh that we have today is because of them. 
So it says that all, you're going to see the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva in a minute. And it says that all of them, they wrote the, the Tosifta and the Baritot and the Sufra and the Sufra and the Mechilta, all of Rabbi Akiva's Talmudim, which is all of the Torah Shabbat that we have today. And the Gemara says, Ve'hakol aliba de Rabbi Akiva. And all of it is after the heart of Rabbi Akiva. Which means that all the Torah Shabbat Peh, essentially the core Torah Shabbat Peh that we have today, which when I say the mitzvah, remember at the beginning of the Hakadamah, we said there's Torah Shabbat Peh that is clearly defined, as opposed to the Gemara, right, which is broad and, and unfinished and constantly developing. They, they put down the Torah Shabbat Peh in writing. So all the Torah Shabbat Peh that we have is basically from Gerim, and that's we know that Stamishnah Rabbi Meir. In other words, an unnamed Mishnah and the Mishnah and all of the Mishnah, we attribute that to Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir, as Rabbi Akiva, as, excuse me, as Harambam says, Ben Gerimaya, Gertzedek, Kibilume Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Ishmael and Rabbi Meir received from Rabbi Akiva. Begam Kibel Rabbi Meir, Vehaberab Rabbi Ishmael. And Rabbi Meir and his Haberim also received from Rabbi Ishmael. So it means Rabbi Ishmael was like a, Rabbi Meir was like a Talmud Haver of Rabbi Akiva. Excuse me, of uh, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Ishmael. Who are the contemporaries of Rabbi Meir? Rabbi Udar, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon, by the way, is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was the Talmud of Rabbi Akiba. Rabbi Akiba was his Rebbe. Rabbi Nehemiah, Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Shamua, Rabbi Yohanan, Rabbi Shimon Ben Azai, Rabbi Hananiah, Rabbi Tadion. Oh my gosh, these guys, you have to understand. Like these were the most eccentric, uh, unbelievable people. Rabbi Akiba's friends also received from Rabbi Akiba. So what he did over here, Harambam, was he went, he said, okay, so there's Rabbi Akiba, there's Hilem Shammai, Rabbi Akiba, and then there's Rabbi Akiba, and then Rabbi Akiba's students and their friends, and then he goes back up again. And he says there was Rabbi, Rabbi Akiba's friends. And who are they? Rabbi Akiba, Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi Gelili. Right, Rabbi Tarfon is the Rav Rabbi Yosei Gelili. Why do they call him Rabbi Yosei Gelili? Because he came from the Galil. That's why. Rabbi Shimon ben Azav, Rabbi Yohanan ben Nuri. Right. So you know these guys because they're in the Haggadah. If you never studied Mishnah, they're the guys in the Haggadah. Maaseh Rabbi Rezev, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Azar ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiba, Rabbi Tarfon, Ayu Mesubim, Neberak. These are all the contemporaries. Rabban Gamliel Azaken kibel Rabban Shimon Aviv benoshel Lilel. Right, so Rabban Gamliel, the elder, received from Rabban Shimon his father, who was the son of Hilel. So notice this, this is very important because this is the line of the Nasi. So Hilel was a Nasi. His son Shimon was a Nasi, and we call him Rabban Shimon. His son was Gamliel. Gamliel Azaken. And we call him Rabban Gamliel. The Rabban, Rabbeinu, it's another way of saying Rabbeinu, is given to the, the Nasi. Yeah? So, we continue down. And then they start naming their kids back and forth, back and forth. Shimon Gamliel, Shimon Gamliel, Shimon Gamliel. Right? So they give it as a dynasty, as a lineage. Which, incidentally, is first of all a siman that you can name after the living unlike the Ashkenazim. And second of all, it is the source of the Menag of the Sephardim, many, many Sephardim who, who name this way. Their firstborn son is named after the father's father. And the firstborn, yeah, and that's how it continues. 
So, Rabban Gabriel Azaken kibel Rabban Shimon Aviv beno Shelilel. Rabban Shimon beno kibel mimeno. Who's Rabban Shimon? The son of Rabban Gabriel Azaken is named Shimon, like his grandfather, and he received from his father, Gabriel. Rabban Gabriel beno kibel mimeno. Right? So then there's Rabban Gabriel Azaken. His father is Shimon. His father is Hillel. So we have Hillel, Shimon, Gamliel Azaken, Shimon, Gamliel. That's where we're at. Rabban Shimon Benod and his son is Shimon. Benod Shimon Kibel Mimeno. And then he has a son, Shimon has a son named Yehuda. Verbi Yehuda Benod Shimon Shimon Zehu Hanikra Rabbenu Akadosh. So, okay, again, what's the lineage? Hillel, Shimon, Gamliel Azaken, Shimon, Gamliel, Shimon, Yehuda. So, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is a direct descendant of Hillel Azaken. Clear? And that's the line of the Nisi'im. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was named Rabbenu Akadosh, our holy Rav. But he also learned from others, not just his father. He also learned from Rabbi Azar bin Shamua and Rabbi Shimon Havero. Right? He has a friend, Rabbi Shimon. Now he says, Who is this Rabbi Udanasi? Rabbi Rabbeinu Akadosh, who we call Rabbi Udanasi Rabbeinu Akadosh. Why do we call him Rabbeinu Akadosh? Who knows? I need the Jeopardy music. No? Who wants to volunteer to get the Jeopardy music next week? Anybody? You want to sing it? Acapella? No? Okay. We call him Rabbeinu Akadosh because it was said about him that he never saw Kerry. He never saw any any seminal emissions that were not for the sake of union, which is the rarest of things. But that's one of the reasons, that's one of the things that Hakani say, which is a big question. I mean, how do they know? Yeah. So either there's testimony of his own that we believe, right? Or we recognize that this man essentially lived his life without any haphazard elements to it. And it says about Rabbi Udanasi that the reason why we consider him essentially the more broad aspects of the reason why we call him a Kadosh is because Rabbi Uda Nasi became an individual that was so connected to the nature of the world and his relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and for that matter, the relationship that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had with Bnei Israel, with the Am, with the Kla. So, you know, this, there's stories told in the Gemara that the Rabbi Kadosh would not laugh because when he would laugh, bad things would happen to B'nai's, to Klal Yisrael. And it says that um, Bar Kapara, yeah, you know when we say Taneh Bar Kapara, Bar Kapara would try to make him laugh because he thought he was too serious. He thought he was taking himself too seriously. So he would come in, you know, come in with like a planter on his head, you know, Chiquita banana or something like that, like slapstick stuff. Not, not he wouldn't draw, make, you know, he would do all kinds of crazy stuff. Barakapara was a little bit of an eccentric person anyway, you know, he, he, he was eccentric. But in any case, Rabbi Uda would laugh, and then he would say, and then bad things would happen. He would say, I told you, please stop making me laugh. It's not, I can't, you can't do that. 
So very strange stories, very strange stories in the Gemara. But in any case, Rabbeinu HaKadosh kibel So Rabbeinu HaKadosh was also profoundly wealthy. He was an extremely wealthy man. They say that he was so wealthy, one of the, the ways that they kind of express this is they say that his stable master of his horses was richer than King Shapur of Persia at the time because he used to sell the manure of the horses of Rabbi Uda Nasi, and he made a fortune doing that. So, okay, I mean, whatever it is. The point is he had a lot of money. And so he was able to, so that's why they say that from the time of Moshe Rabenu until the time of Rabbi Uda Nasi, Lora Inu Torah We did not see a full holding of Torah and political strength and power in one person, right? And you'll say, what do you mean? David Amelech and all of it. Not that way, right? Even David Amelech, he was a tremendous hacham, there's no question about it, but he wasn't necessarily recognized as the mekabel, right? As the, as the one who was holding all of it and the full power of the politics in one person. Not only that, the truth of the matter is that David Amelech took him a very long time to actually be a powerful king. He was not a powerful king for a lot, a lot, of, a lot of years. Right, one one line about David Amelech, which I always uh, always impacted me personally very much, is that he says, you know, when he first becomes king, his cousins, the the sons of Siruya, who was his aunt, they all they're all called the children of Siruya because it's through their mother that they're related to the king, and so normally you would say that somebody's a son of their father, and they're called like Yoav ben Siruya. Yoab ben Suruya is called Yoab ben Suruya, the son of his mother, because it's his mother that made him related to the king, to the royal family. But it didn't matter because Yoab was much more powerful than David, because David, Yoab was a strong general in, in the army before David became king. He was a very famous person in the Am. He was a, a, a celebrated warrior. And he manipulated King David all the time, constantly, to do the things that he wanted King David to do. And people would complain. And David says, When he was king, he would say, I'm still very soft in the face of the children of Suruya. They manipulate me right and left. They're constantly pressuring me. The politics were all there. In any case, why am I telling you this? Because until Rabbi Udanasi, the Hachamim say, from Moshe, until Rabbi Udanasi, we didn't have one person who held the absolute authority of Torah and the absolute authority of leadership, political leadership, in one person. And that was Rabbi Udanasi. So he was, he was, I mean, beyond. The man was, the man was rich, the greatest hacham, and the most powerful individual in the nation. So he held profound clout and authority. And therefore, what he did was he used his clout and authority to write the Mishnah. And what he did was he basically told the Hachamim. I will fund you, sit down and write the Mishnah. Gather all your notes, take everything that you have, all that you've received, and we're going to get it, we're going to gather it together, and we're going to put it into a systematic structure that I'm calling the Mishnah, and it's going to be this, it's going to be set up by Masechtot, Mishnayot, it's going to start with Zra'im, that is connected to Eretz Yisrael, and it's going to go through, and so on and so forth. And that's what he does. And it's an aberration, because who said you're allowed to do this? You're not allowed to write it down. And so he has to do a special limud in order to be able to let him write it down. Hanabam is going to deal with this a little bit. 
But incidentally, Harambam saw Rabbi Udanasi as his hero. He saw Rabbi Udanasi as the reason for his Mishneh Torah. In other words, Harambam genuinely believed that he was redoing the Mishnah by the Mishneh Torah, but in a better system. He thought that his system was, was a better system for what Klal Israel needed post Talmud, right? Mishnah is wonderful pre Talmud, but post Talmud, it's a mess again. So he saw himself as the new Rabbi Udanasi that was formulating all of Torah Shabbat Peh into a systemized uh, text, which he says outright. He says, all you need to do is read the book of the Bible in my book, and you're done as far as knowing what you need to know for Torah Shabbat Peh. Really remarkable. So he says over here that Rabbeinu Kadosh Chibera Mishnah, Umiyamot Moshe ve'ad Moshe ve'ad Rabbeinu HaKadosh lo chibiru chibur shemelamdim oto barabim b'Torah Shabbat Peh. And he says another thing. From the time of Moshe Rabbeinu until the days of Rabbi Yudah Nasi, no book was comprised or, or authored that presented Torah Shabbat Peh. Because what was going on? It was being passed from person to person. It wasn't written in a formal book. They were allowed to keep their own notes, but it wasn't presented as a published work for people. Rather, what happened is in every generation, he would have his own notes, but he would teach it publicly orally. Never wrote things down like that. Not allowed to. There are other Gemarot. Harambam is not posek these halachot, which is very interesting. But the Gemara says, for example, that the words of Torah should be burnt before they're written down. Yeah, or that's a sort of write things down. The right? Things that are about pain, Allah put them down in writing. Any of those halachot, interestingly. So he sees them as principles, not necessarily as, as, as legal restrictions. And so too, even the stuff that wasn't given, this is very important because here he's indicating that there are things that comprise Torah Shabbat Peh that were not given at Sinai, but that were decided by the Beit Din Agadol through the Shlosh Shem Midot Torah and became part of the corpus. That's how it always was until Rabbi Kadosh. Rabbi Kadosh changed everything. And it's not the first time Rabbi Kadosh changed everything. There were several things that he did that changed everything that his fathers did, and they yelled at him for it. It's a very simple thing. You know, it's told that he, he, he was matir the, the vegetables of Bet She'an, that they didn't need to be taken, Masrot didn't have to be taken from them because they weren't considered part of, Klali, part of Eretz Israel, because there was questions of Bet She'an in, in its borders as to whether it was included in part of, part of Eretz Israel or not. All of his grandparents, right? We just meant the, spread the lineage, right? From Hillel down to him. All of them said, no, you have to. You have to take Masrot. And he said, no. He was Matir the the Yerukot the, the, the And so the Hachamim knocked on his door and said, how dare you? Things that all of your grandparents said it was Asur, all of a sudden you're going to come and say it was Motar. Who do you think you are? And his answer is astonishing. And he only had the, he was only he the one who had the clout to answer this way. But what he answers is recorded in the Gemara, a very important principle for us. And he simply says to them, Makom avotai. Yeah, they left me something to do. And this was waiting for me to do. And they looked at him like, what are you talking? That's a very convenient uh, thing to say. 
He said, I'll prove to you that that happens. He said, let me ask you a question. He said, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu, he made the copper snake, right? There was all Magifah in the desert. The, the snakes were coming out, poisonous snakes, and biting the people, and the people were dying. And Moshe calls the Kadosh Baruch Hu, Kadosh Baruch Hu, just make a copper snake. When they look at the snake, they'll be okay. You know the story, right? You know the story? So the Biudana says, well, what happened to that snake? You know what happened to the snake? It became an Avodazara. They called it Nehushtan. People started praying to the snake. You know how long people were praying to that snake? Until the time of Hizkiyahu Melech. That means all through the time of the Shoftim, all through Shaul and David and Shilomo and all of the subsequent kings that were good kings, Yoshua, all of that time. What were they doing? Praying to the snake. How come they didn't take it away? How come they didn't melt it down? How come they didn't do something about it and, and fix it? How come it took until Hezekiah Melech to do it? He said, it was his to do. For whatever reason, it was his window. And he took it. That's it. Yofi. So that's the Ben Kadosh. What did he do? Who kibetz Koleshmot? He gathered all of the things that people, all of the private notes that people had taken. And all of the laws, and all the explanations, and all the commentaries, not only what was given over by Moshe, but what, what, what was given and what was mehudash in every bit din, in every generation, he gathered it all. And from all of it, he authored the Mishnah. And once he had it compiled, he taught it publicly. And it was revealed to all of Israel. And everybody wrote it down, meaning they had scribes that were caught, because they didn't have printing presses until a lot, a lot, lot later, right? So there had scribes that were copying the Mishnah. They pushed it out, pushed it out to all to all the people. Why? Because it was getting to a point that the Torah was starting to get diluted and lost. And so they did this, So the Torah shouldn't be forgotten from Israel. Which tells me something. Which tells me that the breach between God and Israel does not ensure that the Torah will not be forgotten. That's staggering. And it's not the only time that it says this. You know, there's an argument between Rabbi Yudan and Rabbi Chia about the Torah. He said, you know, if the Torah was all forgotten from Israel, well, who are you talking about Torah forgotten from Israel? What, why, why are you even speaking about that? There's possibility. Okay. Now, why did Rabbi Yudan Kadosh do this? And he didn't just leave it as it always was. Because he saw that the circumstances were getting bad. Galut was beginning. Yerushalayim was destroyed. People were starting to disperse. They were being distracted and the Talmidim were not as strong and many as they used to be. They were getting more hardships on the people and restrictive situations on the people. And the evil kingdom which is a euphemism or a, a nickname for Rome. Anytime you see Malchut Rasha, it's always referring to Rome. 
right? Because it's our twin brother. We hate him. He's a, he's a loser. And he constantly bothers us and tries to destroy us. So it was, it was spreading throughout the world and getting stronger, the Roman Empire. So Rabbi Udanasi was very concerned about, he had foresight. He had vision. He recognized that the way, and this is so important, he recognized that the way that we were doing things until now, even though it was over a thousand years that it had been done this way, it was time to stop it because it wasn't working anymore. And so he needed to change what was done, even if it was seen as an aberration, which is in itself shocking, which tells us that we have to consider such things sometimes. And he'll say, what do you mean? Nobody did it before. And you have to answer, okay, you say, well, yeah, but you're not a Biudanasi. Yeah, but a Biudanasi wasn't Moshe Rabbeinu either. So there are, there are, there are things that have to be considered. And sometimes they're little mini things. They're not big Rabbeinu HaKadosh things. Sometimes they're little mini things. So Israel was dispersing all over the place. The Jewish people were going all over the place. Notice, by the way, Harambam, notice, notice, Harambam never says Yehudim. He always says Israel. Always. So the Israel mitgalgelim ve'olchim l'ktavot so what he did was he made a portable Torah. That's what he did. He made a portable Torah so that every single person could have it in their hand. So that they could learn it easily and quickly because the Mishnah is very concise and it's like signs and signals to, to remember the, the Torah and that people shouldn't forget it. And the rest of his life, he just spent teaching the Mishnah, him and his Bedin, and putting it all over the place. Sina. With regards to Yodan Asi, could, could one say that if he wasn't as powerful and as rich as he was, we wouldn't be where we are today? Yeah, possible. That's crazy. So he wasn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily because of his, his being a Tamid Hacham. No, of course it was. If he wasn't Tamid Hacham, his rich, his rich powerful would be meaningless. But also if he didn't have the money to be able to... It's it's both. It's both. Because it's an expensive endeavor. It's extremely expensive, but he was able to afford it. Is that all? That's all. Ohad Vidida. Why is it such a problem to write down the Torah for the Torah Shabbal Peh? Because the Torah Shabbal Peh, the, the oral nature of the Torah Shabbal Peh allows for its responsiveness to its development. The minute that you write something down, fossilizes. And that's why when they wrote it down, even when they wrote it down, they wrote it down very minimally. The Mishnah is not a big, elaborate work. It's a very minimal, concise work. And the more you write down, the more people hesitate to change it because it's there, it's written, it's in writing in front of you. I mean, I've, I don't, I've had this experience many times where I'll say halakha and the stupid Sidur has a halakha that's wrong or that's not according to us. 
And everybody says, yeah, but it says in the Sidur. What do I care what it says in the Sidur? So the Sidur learns Shahan Aruch? It doesn't matter. When people see it written in front of them, it's a psychological thing. They can't change it. They can't. It's stuck forever. So shouldn't that be true, though, for the Gemara, but not necessarily for the Torah? It's the same, but it's just it's as much of a disaster, if not more, the Gemara. But the Gemara also, the Gemara tried, Rabina Ravasheh, they worked on like holding and maintaining the dialectical process in the Gemara so that you should be able to see how it's supposed to happen at least, right? Very difficult thing to do, but that's what they did. Daniel Levy. Um, so once uh, Rabbi Nakadesh wrote it down, does, it, that, does that ultimately break the, the ability for someone to have, uh, to be a, a Mikubal anymore? Meaning, um, if they're learning Mishnah, they can no longer be a Mikubal. So you'll see, you'll, see, you'll see how Harambam deals with it. We're going to develop it. So. Anyone else? Yoshua Ben Zadon, I see you did your hair tonight. I'm very proud of you. Very proud of you. Okay. And these are the Hachamim who were in the Bedin of Rabbeinu HaKadosh and received from him, right? So this is besides the teaching of the Mishnah, besides the writing of the Mishnah, this is how the reception, you hear Daniel Levy? This is how the reception happens following. Who are these people? Shimon Gamliel Banav, right? His kids were also Shimon and Gamliel. Right? He didn't stop the naming process, he continued. See, these guys now, because remember, Rabbi Udanasi is the last of the Tanaim, essentially. He's, one, he's in the final generation of the Tanaim, because he's writing the Mishnah from everybody who came before him up to him. So from him down, there are these, these names that we're reading now, they're names of the Gemara, they're names of the Moraim. Rabbi Afes, Rabbi Haniyah bin Hama, Rabbi Hiya, Rabbi Anai, Bar Kapara, Shmuel, Rabbi Yohanan, Rabbi Oshaya. Rabbi Yohanan, by the way, is the author of the Talmud Yerushalmi. Right? That's the Rabbi Yohanan and Rish Lakish, Rabbi Yohanan. Elohim ha-gedolim shigabiru mimenu vimahem alafim urbabot mish'ar ha-chamim. These are the ha-chamim received from him, and together with them, meaning others learned, were thousands, thousands of people learned. Rabbi Yohanan, Qatanaya, but he was very young, Rabbi Yohanan. But the bulk of his Torah he received from Rabbi Yohanan. Notice it says Rav. Rav is the Rav in Shmuel. So notice that it says over here Shmuel. See how it says Shmuel, Kibir, Bihanyabin, Hama. Shmuel uh, is the student of, uh, is one of the Haberim of Barakapara, So Rav and Shmuel, who if you've studied Gemara, you've heard of them, right? They were contemporaries and they were Bar Pilukta. They argued together. Rav was older than Shmuel. And we say about Rav, Rav Tanau Palig, which means that Rav is considered a Tana because he was the earliest Emora. And even though he's considered an Emora in the Gemara, with regards to arguing with Tanaim, Rav can argue directly with Tanaim. Rav Tanau Palig. Everybody else, 
can no longer argue on the Tanaim. Why? There's no rule. They accepted that that's going to be their rule. They accepted that rule upon themselves. That in order to solidify the Mishnah and to establish its authority, we will not argue directly on the Hachamim of the Mishnah. And it's a Kabbalat Arabim. There's no rule that came from heaven that said we're not allowed to argue on the Hachamim of the Mishnah. Nobody ever said such a thing. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't even know that the Mishnah was going to be written. There's no rule. So how does that rule come about? The rule comes about because everybody accepted upon themselves. We're not going to argue with the Mishnah. Except Rav was on the cusp, so they allowed him to argue. But otherwise, we don't argue with the Mishnah. And that ensures the strength and authority of the Mishnah. That was done to ensure the continuity of the Torah. That it wouldn't fall apart and dissipate into a free-for-all of whatever it is that anybody wants to say. I got in trouble for saying that what people did do in the Gemara was to establish ukimtaot on the Mishnah. And what the ukimtaot of the Mishnah are, are saying essentially that the Mishnah should be understood in these terms. And so it's not a way of arguing directly, but it's a way of redefining a Mishnah. And they killed me for saying it. And the problem is, is that they didn't ever see that Rabbi Yisrael Fisher writes very explicitly in Beit Yishai that that's exactly what they did. They think that I pulled that out of the heavens somewhere because I got up on the wrong side of the bed one morning and I decided to say some crazy things about the Achamim because Hajj Shalom, I ever studied anything in my life. But I digress. So here we have Shumuel and Rav and their contemporaries, and they already are coming into the post Mishnaic period, just the period after the Mishnah. Rav, for example, Chiber Sifra, Besifre. These are explanations on Vaikra and Bemidbar, Sefer Vaikra and Bemidbar, halachic explanations of Sefer Vaikra and Bemidbar. excuse me, Shmod Bemidbar. Lebaer Uladiakare Mishnah, in order to be able to elaborate. See, they realize already the Mishnah is so concise that they have to start elaborating on the Mishnah of their Rav. So they do. They start elaborating on the Mishnah of their Rav and the Sifra and the Sifre. And Rabbi Hayya Chibera Tosifta, Lebayer Inyanea Mishnah. Tosifta is exactly what it sounds like. It's Tosifit, right? It's, it's the appendix, additions to the Mishnah, added elements to the Mishnah. They added Baraitot. What is a Baraita? Why is a Baraita called a Baraita? Look at me. Look at me. It's outside. Is that Yoshua Ben Zadon with his hair? Yeah. What does that mean? How come it says, but how come that's outside? Why does that mean outside? Well, bar is outside, isn't it? Bar means outside. Ligo is inside. Bar is outside. Like in Arabic, barra. Barra is outside. So the barraita, and it's not a brisa. It's barraita. That's how you're supposed to pronounce it. Barraita means it is a text that was on the outside. The outside of what? The Mishnah. It wasn't published officially in the Mishnah. So the Baraitot were still there and people had them. And so you see throughout the Gemara, they're cited. And you know in the Gemara when it's talking about a Baraita, because instead of saying Tinan, which tells us we learned and learned in what? Always in the Mishnah. But if it says Tanya, which is the Aramaic form of that, it's referring its code for a Baraita. Right, that it's bringing in a baraita that's saying, well, okay, we have a Mishnah that says this, but we have a baraita who says this. 
How do we reconcile them? Do we go like the Baraita? Do we go like the Mishnah? So on and so forth. Okay? But the point over here is, is that the Talmidim of Rabbi Udanasi, the Dorot, the subsequent Dorot, the adjacent Dorot that came after him, already are, are following him in writing things down. So it's not like, oh my gosh, the Mishnah is sacrosanct. And that that's the only thing that should be written down. No, they start writing things because they realize that the Mishnah alone is too concise. And so there needs to be elaborations on the Mishnah. And so they're And where did it hit its first major explosion and, and presentation? In the Talmud, not the Talmud Bavli, but the Talmud Yerushalmi. Which was written before the Talmud Bavli in Eretz Israel by Rabbi Yohanan. When we say written, we mean it was compiled, edited. Rabbi Yohanan is the major architect of the Talmud Yerushalmi. And that was done. Yerushalmi, Eretz Yisrael, Harhor Banabait, Bekarov Mishlosh Shana. It was 300 years later. And by 300 years after the Horbanabait, after the destruction of Beit Mikdash, the Talmud is written. And the Talmud is an exposition of the Mishnah in tremendous detail. But even that, that you cannot even compare the Talmud Yerushalmi to the Talmud Bavli in terms of what was actually written down. And we'll get to that, Bezrat Hashem, next time. Because we're going to stop at the Talmud Yerushalmi. No, you know what? Hold on a second. Yeah, I think we're going to stop at Yerushalmi. Okay, what's the questions? Michael, I'm still in. Um, so the Chachamim, the Amoraim, in, where was the yeshiva based? Where were they I can't hear, so I can't hear. Oh, um, I'm asking about the Amoraim. Where was the yeshiva? Where were they learning? Where were they? The Amoraim were learning in many places. There was yeshivot in Eretz Israel, and there were yeshivot in Babel. Was anyone specific in in Eretz Yisrael? Was it Karen Yavne? Was it in? They were learning in Yavne. There was places in Yerushalayim. There were places in all all over. There were places all over. Okay. Depended whose yeshiva. And also there was there was situations earlier on of the galut of the Sanhedrin where the Sanhedrin was. There were ten different places. There were different yeshivot. Depended more whose yeshiva you wanted to go to. Who's learning? Did you want to be? Who's who's, you know, like when we say Tana de Be so and so, right? So whose yeah. house are you learning in? Who's 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 bite? Who's Yeshiva are you learning? But at the time that was it was they were refuting the leadership of the temple, which was the the Maccabees. No, it wasn't wasn't it what the Maccabees? No, it's much earlier. Oh, that was, earlier. that was before. Much earlier. That's uh, where the Beit Hamikdash is still standing in Hanukkah. The Beit Hamikdash is still standing. Yes, Yehoshua. Uh, yeah, um, so you said that the Amoraim uh, received on themselves not to contradict the Tanaim. Is that binding to everyone? Yeah, like, well, yeah, because it's called because it was done by the Rabim, then it's essentially binding on everyone. Rav, Rav Fisher has a very excellent article, a whole whole inyan on this in the Beit Yishai, which maybe we can do one day. Is that the shame? But yes, it's collective collective. Avi Garson.
So the Torah Shabbat was um, essentially sealed by Rabbi Danasi, is what we read. Is that correct? One can't say that it was sealed by Rabbi Danasi because he didn't necessarily have the authority to seal it, but it was it was solidified by Rabbi Danasi. It was a firm shape, and and almost an unalterable text which made it border on a Torah Shebikhtav. And that was part of the issue. But, which is why they said, you know, they, it's famous that they said, you know, when that was done, they had to be Doresh the Pasuk et Latzot Toratecha. Yeah? Which the shot of the Pasuk is, it's time to do something for God because they're destroying His Torah. Right? They were Doresh the Pasuk, said, Et Latzot Hashem, we have to do something for God. Mishum Sheferu Toratecha. Right? Because... Or we have to do it in, in order to do for God. We have to be in some way look like there's a farat Torah by writing it down. Right. So, so, so part of the reason was also because it was the last Beddin Hagadol. Is that correct? After well, Bibliana, it was no Sanhedrin. Well, yes. What happened? What happened was is that because going back to what Yoshua was asking, or no, it was Michael. Michael was asking, was there was movement away from Eretz Israel, and the the there was establishment beginning in Babel, and the Sanhedrin can't function outside of Eretz Israel, but Babel was becoming very strong and prominent. So it wasn't a you know a a, a a snap of the fingers and everything shifted. There was this gradual shift that was happening. That's why we're going to see like there was the development of the Resh and then there was a question of the Resh Gluta and the Nasi and how they interacted with each other and the Kiddush HaChodesh and the authority of the Sanhedrin and all of that. That shifted. Absolutely. So those were causing definite issues in terms of how Torah Shabbat Peh could survive because the system that we relied upon, which at its heart was a reliance on unity, which was falling apart. And that's something that people do not realize even today. They don't understand that the reason why we cannot do the things that so many people think we need to do with regards to halachic authority is because we just don't have any central authority. Today more than ever before, which we'll see as to why. But I think that I'm going to just say on the side, I think it's very significant because it's exactly where we're supposed to be. In other words, we are supposed to get to a point in which we just can't stand it anymore. That's why when we say in the Biracha, Hashiva Shoptenu Kebarishona, which is essentially a prayer to, return, to, re, to bring the Sanhedrin back. And we pray for it every single day. And we say, Haserviminu Yagon Ba'anaha. That Yagon is, is, is akin to agony. The word agony is its roots in Yagon. Yagon and Anaha is this despair, this agony that we find ourselves in, in which genuinely this is not how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live with a living, responsive, conscious Sanhedrin. That's how the Torah was tailored. And we are so terribly stuck. And we're feeling more and more and more stuck. And one of the reasons we're feeling more and more and more stuck is because we're losing more and more central authority. It used to be that okay, so you lived in wherever, Amsterdam, you lived in London, wherever you lived, so your Bedin was the authority. And they had carte blanche. They could establish what they needed to establish for their arm, for their clown, for their congregation. Now, oh my goodness, 
uh, it doesn't matter where you live or what you say or how you do. You're, you're subject to being uh, annihilated by people across the face of the earth. It doesn't matter what you say or who you are. So it's gotten to a point where we just can't stand it anymore. But that's exactly where it's supposed to be. Because as it says that the Mashiach and the Beit HaMikdash and, the, and Yerushalayim are not coming back to the people until they can't stand it anymore. Until they get to the point that they need to have it. Because the way that they lost it was they were disgusted with having it. Oh, you're disgusted with having it? Not a problem. We could take it away. Okay, so you're living without it? You're living without it for how long? A thousand years? Two thousand years? However long it takes you until you realize you just can't stand it anymore. And that you need them. And then you ask me for them. And when you ask me for them, I'll give them to you. And so we're experiencing that. That's why the Bir Hanan says about the days of the Mashiach. I never tire of quoting that because Harambam brings it. He brings it in the Ma'amar Tehrat Amitim. And also in the Geret um, Teman. So the Bir Hanan says about the days of the Mashiach, Let them come, but I just don't want to see them. They're terrible. It's not going to be pretty. Yeah. Okay, Sina. I don't know what I can ask after that. That was okay. very, very important. Um, you don't have to ask. Unless just the rough fisher, the rough fisher, the well, the rough fisher on Mishnahic authority. I missed that. What what was his chiddush, um, if you like, that you were saying about the redefining of Mishnahic authority? He said that they used that the Omoraim, because they could not argue on the Mishnah and they needed to be able to adjust the Mishnah, they would use an Ukimta. An Ukimta is a, is a mode or a way of understanding the Mishnah that the Gemara uses, right? And say the Mishnah should be understand in this, understood in this context. And if it's in this context, then it would be explained this way. So what do others say that are not Rafisha? Others say, well, that was just the Mesorah that they got, that the Ukimta was lost somewhere. And they, they said, no, this is how you're supposed to read it. And what Rafisha is saying, it was not lost somewhere. They established the context of the Mishnah in that capacity because as a means of, of ensuring the authority of the Mishnah while still being able to make things malleable and responsive to the needs of the time, which is in line with, which is, uh, which is in line with, um, um, right, you go to the Shofet in your days as Rashi says the only relevant Shofet to you is the Shofet in your days by definition understood okay okay so we start with the Talmud Yerushalmi again I Thank apologize you. for the late start tonight forgive me Mechila I hope How was the wedding, though? Good yeah. wedding? What? It was a good wedding? It was a nice wedding. Thank God. Good. Beautiful. Thank all you. right. Rav, thank you so much. Um, good to see you all. Thank Not you, well. everybody. Thank oh. you for making it. And uh, oh. I'll be in touch via the WhatsApp group. Really, really good to see We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bet Midrash. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to rate and review. Have a wonderful day.